0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly Bright Focus Chats presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm a Ph.D. and also the Vice President of Scientific Affairs at the Bright Focus Foundation. Today, we're going to talk about living independently with low vision. So unlike previous calls, no drugs, no needles. What can we do in our daily lives with just a little bit of help and in in training? Like last time, if you would like to submit a question at any time during today's call, please press star 3 to submit your question to an operator. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, here's the number to call back in. It's 877-229-8493. And you'll then be asked to punch in an ID code, and that ID code is 112435. So that's 877 229 ID 112435. All our calls are recorded, and we'll get more information on recordings and transcripts later in the call. So our guest today is Orly Weiser-Pike, a doctor of occupational therapy and a certified low vision therapist. She has more than 18 years of clinical experience in a wide variety of settings and is specialized in treating people disabled by vision loss. Dr. Weiser-Pike is the 2014 recipient of the Recognition of Achievement Award given by the American Occupational Therapy Association. She is currently Assistant Director of the Low Vision Service at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, where she also serves as a professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy. So Dr. Weiser-Pike, thank you for joining us. I've, I've had the opportunity to speak with you previously, and I have to say, you have a lovely accent. And I imagine that our listeners will be trying to pin it down. So am I correct that this is a South African accent, maybe with a bit of local Tennessee flavor?
1: (laughs) You're right, Guy. Well, good day to everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Guy, you're correct. I was born in South Africa, and I moved to the United States 18 years ago for my first job as an occupational therapist. But I promise I will speak slowly and clearly so hopefully people will understand what I'm saying.
0: That, that, that sounds absolutely great. And so without, without any further ado, you started to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and a little bit about your practice, but, but maybe you could expound on that and tell us about the type of patients you see and, and what you try to achieve with those patients.
1: Well, I am an occupational therapist and a low vision therapist, and so my role is to help Help develop um, relationships w- between people with low vision and their doctor. I also try and make sure that um, patients have the appropriate types of devices that they need that are prescribed by their eye doctor. And I try and help uh, my patients learn the skills that they need to use their devices. I make recommendations for patients um, to help them to adjust uh, their environment, modify their environment. Uh, Maybe they need to modify their routines. I try and help patients understand the disease that they have and also dispel some common myths about vision and blindness. And I'm also, uh, a thing that's very important for me is to help caregivers as well understand uh, vision loss um, of their loved one. So the patients that I see in the clinic range uh, in age, actually from children all the way to, um, I've had centenarians in the clinic. But most of the people that I see have low vision as a result of an age-related eye disease, so, some that come to mind would be macular degeneration, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, cataracts, and sometimes retinal um, occlusions, so little mini strokes in the eye. Some patients have had a stroke and they have vision loss from the stroke. And as I mentioned, I also do see children. Um, Our uh, university has an affiliation with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which is headquartered over here in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a cancer hospital. And so I do, um, our eye doctors provide the eye care for those children, and I do get to see children. Who have vision loss as a result of the cancer, or sometimes a result of the treatment of their cancer, but in the the majority of the patients are um, seniors with age-related eye diseases.
0: Well, I, you know what what unites everything together there is that is that loss of vision, and certainly you're at the you're at the front line, and in this really amazing place to really understand what vision loss is because you're you're helping people work within their daily li- lives, not just as a drug, but within their daily lives to you know to to understand how to cope with this. And so I, I guess one of the first questions we'd have is that is how does macular degeneration, and that, that's why the focus is of our foundation. So how does macular de- degeneration first announce itself? And what I mean by that is, you know, what am I apt to be doing when I first realize that I'm losing vision? You know, will I have difficulty reading? You know, will bathroom tiles mo- move? Will they blur? So what, what could you tell us about when you first notice macular degeneration?
1: So the number one reason that people go to see their eye doctor is because they have trouble reading. Most often people want a stronger prescription, they want a new pair of glasses. People will notice that words look blurry or words run together and sometimes the print might look faded. It becomes especially difficult when there's not enough light for reading or when the words are printed on a colored background. So people might notice that their reading has slowed down a great deal and that they have to sound out words or that they have to go back and look at words again and only when they look back, they see what they actually missed. It can be very frustrating. I'm glad you brought up the example of the bathroom tiles moving. What you are referring to is a phenomenon called metamorphopsia. Some people describe the window blinds being wavy or lines of print looking wavy rather than straight, and this is an early sign that there are changes in the retina. So, metamorphopsia, what I'm busy describing, is most noticeable when a person closes one eye. And looks with the other eye only but unfortunately people don't go around looking at things with one eye at a time we use both our eyes and our brain does a very good job covering up metamorphopsia when we use both our eyes together so I'd like to take this opportunity and make an important announcement to anyone on the call today who has been given an Amsla grid by their eye doctor. Now, you may not know what an Amsla grid, or you may not know that it is called an Amsla grid, but an Amsla grid is a test of your own vision. It is a grid approximately three by three inches square, usually black lines against a white background with a dot in the center. And the instructions are to look at the center dot and notice if the lines look wavy or blurred or distorted or if there are any areas that are missing from the grid. Now I want to remind the listeners that you must do this test with each eye separately while the other eye is closed. This test is a way to tell if you are experiencing metamorphopsia or other changes in your vision. If you notice changes, you must let your eye doctor know.
0: Well, I want to take a moment to say that those Amsler grids that you mentioned, they're they're certainly available through brightfocus.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-437-2423. We'll send those right out to you. I also want to take a moment to remind you that if you have questions at any point during this conversation, just press star three and you'll be taken out of the call taken to an operator who will take down your question and then you'll be returned to the call. But but as you begin to describe uh, you know, this early stages of macular degeneration, well, when when Orly, when should people come see you? And maybe you could give us a, a real-world example of what, what's a point at which you could say, you know, it, it's time to come in and see a specialist.
1: Okay. Well, that's a very good question. Um, firstly, if you've been told by your doctor that your vision cannot be corrected to normal with eyeglasses or medications or surgery. And if you have an eye disease or a condition that is affecting your vision, or if you have been told that you have low vision, then you are ready to see a low vision therapist or another rehabilitation professional that works with people with vision loss. Even if your eye doctor tells you there is nothing more that he or she can do for you, or if there's no treatment for your vision problem, then you can always seek help from a vision rehabilitation professional. Also, if you purchase any optical devices like magnifiers and telescopes, you will need to learn how to properly use them for the right job. I often see patients who have magnifiers that end up in a drawer because they were never taught how to use them correctly. And then this creates a dangerous cycle of despair because patients then believe that nothing is going to help them, which is not true. So no matter how small or how great your vision loss is, I want to let you know that there is hope and there is more that can be done to help you as a person. A rehabilitation professional, like an occupational therapist or a low vision therapist, will not be able to restore your vision, but we will be able to help you function using new tools and new methods and new resources. The good news is that the field of low vision therapy is expanding, and as more knowledge and education is becoming available, especially in occupational therapy, there's more services that are available as well.
0: Well, you bring up a, a couple different professions, and I think we'll have to come back and, and maybe talk about some of the differences between the different types of therapists one can see. But there is a question that comes up time and time again with our audiences. And before we move on to the actual question and answer period, I I have one sort of burning question. You have a difficult job. You have strong and independent patients who are facing some, some very difficult questions. And one of the ones that comes up all the time is driving. So as a professional, how, how do you help people think about that question but still do what's right and respect their independence?
1: Mm. I'm really happy that you brought up this topic of driving because, it, because it is, it's very difficult to talk about driving cessation. It's a complicated issue because many of my patients live in suburban and rural areas where there are no alternatives or options for public transportation or even taxicab services. Regardless of my personal feelings or opinions about it, I'm obligated to inform my patients of the law. So the vision requirements to obtain and renew a driver's license vary from state to state, but the common factor in all states is a minimum best corrected visual acuity, meaning the minimum sharpness of vision between 2040 and 2060, depending on the state. Now, some states also have a visual field requirement, meaning that when looking straight ahead, one sees so much to each side. Some States allow people to use a specialized telescope for driving called a bioptic telescope but not all states allow this device for example the states of Tennessee and Mississippi allow people to use bioptic telescopes for driving but the state of Florida for example does not allow these devices And even when the bioptic telescopes, even with the bioptic telescopes, there are certain requirements that must be met, and these again vary from state to state. Now, I want to emphasize that bioptic telescopes are specialized telescopes that are fitted to the patient by an eye doctor. So they are custom-made for each patient. They are not for everyone or for every eye condition. So please don't try to drive with a telescope, even if it is allowed in your state, unless you have been prescribed, fitted, and trained in the use of a bioptic telescope for driving. So there are several places where you can find out about the visual requirements for driving. A very good website is Prevent Blindness dot org and it has on its website a web page called state vision screening and standards for license to drive and so that is a comprehensive document that lists state by state what the requirements are for driving. The National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration also lists on its website state licensing requirements and reporting laws. So in some states, physicians are required to report patients who do not meet the legal requirements to drive.
0: Well, I I thank you for that and certainly if anybody who does not routinely go onto the internet would like to call into the Bright Focus Foundation and have somebody help them walk them through some of those resources, then that's what we're here to do and the number is 1-800-437-2423. we're going to uh, we're going to move from that particularly sensitive question onto others that are equally important but are going to be submitted by our by our callers. So I want to remind people if you want to submit a question, you know, just dial star 3 and it'll take you to that op- operator who'll take that question down and we'll try to answer as many questions as we can that are representative of callers' interests on the topic. And after the chat, you can call that BrightFocus telephone number or visit our website at brightfocus.org to see how these questions have been answered. Also, to get large font transcripts and, and download uh, recordings of this, of this phone call. So, one of the first questions that we have is it really tables on the fact that you gave a really nice description of what signals might prompt us to say, Come see a low vision specialist. But we had questions from listeners. Uh, Maurice from Connecticut was one of the ones asking that asked about that term low vision itself. And she asked, how low is low vision? So uh, what's a good definition for low vision? And should we get confused when we hear terms like legal blindness or that dreaded word blindness Mm -hmm. used interchangeably with low vision?
1: Yeah, sometimes those definitions are confusing. So the basic definition of low vision is vision that is not correctable by surgery, medication, or glasses, meaning not correctable to normal. And when we talk about low vision, we really rely on two visual functions, and that is the sharpness of vision, or otherwise known as visual acuity, and the visual field which is how much you see all around you while you're looking straight ahead. So sometimes people will call that peripheral vision. Low vision starts, or you can say the, the start of low vision is when somebody's sharpness of vision is 2060 or worse. And if somebody has visual field defect. In both eyes, so that kind of gives you an understanding of where uh, low vision starts. And we have normal vision, which is 20/20 vision, near normal, which is 20/30 to 20/40, and then low vision starts at the point where functionally people can't read newsprint. So the size of newsprint more or less is at the level of 2050 visual acuity. And again, as I mentioned with visual field defects, if somebody has um, areas of missing vision, islands of missing vision, or or complete um, areas of side vision that are missing, or tunnel vision, um, these defects in both eyes, that again meets the definition of low vision. Now, legal blindness is, um, it's a legal definition, and it's a severe level of low vision, which starts at 2200 or worse. And also, if somebody has a visual field that is smaller or narrower than 20 degrees, they are also considered to be legally blind. The definition of Blindness is, you know, blindness is less well-defined, but blindness does not mean a complete absence of light. In fact, uh, when we talk about blindness, it includes people with low vision as well. Um, people that are completely without sight represent a very small percentage of the population of people who have vision loss. So the word blindness can be confusing, and it's even more confusing because a lot of very helpful organizations have the word blind in them. For example, the American Foundation for the Blind is an organization that provides tremendous resources to the public, but it's for people with low vision, legal blindness, and total vision loss. So it well, can be confusing,
0: guys. Well, well, thank you. So with that landscape established of some of the terminologies, let's move, let's move quickly on to some other questions. We have Tom from Rhode Island asking about telescopic glasses. And I, I think very importantly, he's asking, you know, what are they? But also, how long did it take to be able to use them? So how, how would you address Tom if he were in your clinic?
1: So I'll tell Tom that a telescope is an optical device which is commonly used to magnify things that are far away. Most people might be familiar with binoculars for bird watching or opera glasses for watching a play. A hunting rifle might have a scope that helps a person aim on the target. So these are all examples of telescopes. Some telescopes are designed for use with two eyes, like binoculars, And some telescopes are designed to be used with one eye only. And these are called monoculars, monocular telescopes. Some are designed to be worn like glasses. Some are handheld. And some telescopes are designed to be embedded into a pair of glasses like bioptic telescopes for driving that I mentioned earlier there are many skills that need to be learned in order to use a telescope effectively. And these all depend on the design of the telescope. For example, if a person uses a monocular telescope for reading signage in a grocery store, he or she will first need to learn how to line up the telescope with his or her better eye, aim it at the target or aim it at the sign, and focus the telescope while staying steady. Now, if a person uses a pair of head telescopes, so those would be telescopes that fit over your ears like a pair of glasses. Some people use those to watch television. He or she will need to learn how to focus the glasses as well. Learning to use bioptic telescopes for driving is essential if you're going to use those and get behind the wheel. But in any event, if you are using telescopes, please, please, never walk while looking through a telescope. You might hurt yourself.
0: So I, let me ask a question. There's, uh, we're talking about these low vision specialists, and you certainly have a wealth of tools. Uh, you have telescopes. You have other devices, but. How do how do I find you in my community? Where would I go to to find out where I where a low vision specialist might be might be situated?
1: Oh gosh. So, I would start by asking your eye doctor. Uh, in 2007, the American Academy of Ophthalmology developed an initiative called the Smart Sight Initiative, and it encourages all ophthalmologists at the very least to offer patients with low vision information about local resources. So if you see an optometrist as well, ask him or her about low vision specialists in your area. You can also contact the Academy for Certification of Vision Rehabilitation and Education Professionals. And they are at, uh, if you're going online, they're at acvrep.org. Now this organization certifies three professions. They certify low vision therapists, orientation and mobility specialists, and vision rehabilitation therapists. Now there are about 300 certified low vision therapists in the United States. You can also contact the American Occupational Therapy Association. There are currently about 40 40, 40, occupational therapists With specialty certification in low vision.
0: Well, we we also offer through our website. We do offer a low vision support group fact sheet. We'd certainly be happy to help people with that. And certainly, we're gonna we're gonna start here. We're starting to hear a a lot of. uh, a lot of terms, and I can only imagine we have people that are, have one hand on the telephone and one hand with a pen and paper. So let us do the pen and paper part for us. Just call us in, call in, give us a couple weeks, and we'll have a transcript available for you. But I'm going to ask a question that has a lot of alphabet soup associated with mm-hmm. it. So what is there a particular degree for all these professions that you mentioned, is there a particular sequence of letters that we should see after someone's name that would let us know we're in the right office?
1: oh my gosh that really is an alphabet soup guy so please bear with me there are four acronyms that indicate a person has specialized knowledge and skills in low vision a CLVT is a certified low vision therapist a CVRT is a Certified Vision Rehabilitation Therapist. A COMS is a Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist. And the last one is an SCLV. Now that is Specialty Certification in Low Vision. This last one, the SCLV, is given only to an occupational therapist. But an occupational therapist may also have any of the certifications mentioned previously.
0: Well, we've had a number of, of questions, I'm going to change course just a little bit. We've had a number of questions that are asking for those, you know, outside of those devices, what are the, what are the things that people can adapt their homes to do to, to improve safety and, and make some of those tasks in the home easier to perform?
1: Okay, so that's a great question about how you can adapt your home. Well, the first thing that you can do really easily is to improve the lighting in your home. Did you know, Guy, that light bulbs lose their brightness over time?
0: Actually, I did not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, light bulbs lose their brightness and dirty light covers also take away some of the brightness of the bulb. So cleaning the fixtures and replacing old bulbs with newer energy-efficient bulbs can make a big difference. Of course, lighting is personal and it's subjective, and what works for one person may not work for another person. In my practice, a common type of light bulb that many of my patients like especially in overhead ceiling fans and in places like closets, pantries, and the laundry room, is a compact fluorescent bulb that is equivalent to 100 watts and is the daylight color temperature, not soft white or bright white. I would not recommend traditional incandescent bulbs or halogen bulbs because they produce a lot of heat, and they're unsafe. Never ever place a bulb that has a higher wattage than the fixture is rated for. This is extremely dangerous and can cause your house to burn down. And in fact, I have treated a patient who not only lost his house but lost family members as a result of a house fire where there were bulbs that were placed in fixtures that weren't rated for that um, wattage. So it's it's very it's a terrible thing to do. Now another thing that you can do is to make your home safer is to remove any loose rugs or secure them to the floor. Uh, Clutter, in general, can make it very difficult to find what you need. But even more so when a person has low vision. So try to organize items and keep similar items grouped together. For example, place your cleaning materials in a caddy or a bucket. Keep things in the same place. And certainly, don't be afraid to get rid of things that you are not using. So try and clean up some of the clutter. Another uh, recommendation is to make sure that kitchen cabinets are always kept closed because one sure way to injure yourself is by leaving a kitchen cabinet open and then bumping into it with your forehead. So I've seen those kind of accidents and they're not very pretty. Uh, You can also store things according to how frequently you use them. So you can put plates and cups in cabinets that are easy to reach and put items that you rarely use, for example, a punch bowl, in in, in cabinets that are lower or higher. And then one last recommendation. I always recommend keeping a tray on the counter. You can pour your coffee or orange juice or any other beverage in a cup that is placed on the tray, and that way, if you have an accidental spill, it will be contained in the tray and hopefully won't mess up the kitchen floor
0: so those are those are wonderful, I think some of those are ones that we really hadn't heard about before and i for anyone who goes onto the internet and looks for these, my experience has been as you see you see a lot of the same sorts of uh sorts of tips, and you know it, one of the things I think the the low vision specialist profession is offering is that relationship. These are people who have sort of seen and heard it all in terms, of, in terms of techniques for around the home. I really encourage people to take advantage of those low vision specialists. I have to say, you know, one of the things that I personally hadn't heard before. I had a friend tell me the other day, and you know, Miss Kathy, if you're on the line, I'm I'm talking about you. Uh, she uh, she said she puts a sticker on her sliding glass door, and that's because she can't tell the difference between a clean door and an open door. And it's one of those things that it makes sense, but it really just takes talking to someone who's been down that road to um, to. Uh, to know that that's one that's worth doing. That's that's unexpected things for dealing with low vision. But you probably have some experience with with symptoms that might be unexpected or aspects of uh aspects of low vision in general that just people didn't realize that they were going to have to accommodate. Do you, could you tell people what their what types of uh, what types of experiences they they might be surprised to find themselves confronted with?
1: Oh, I think, Guy, that you might be asking me about Charles Bonnet syndrome. Is that right?
0: Well, that would be one of them, sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm really glad that you asked me to talk about this um, Charles Bonnet syndrome. Some people may have never heard of it, but it happens to many people with vision loss. In fact, some studies estimate that between one and two thirds of people with low vision have it. Charles Bonnet syndrome is characterized by visual hallucinations, which are also called phantom visions. Now, people with Charles Bonnet syndrome see things that are not there. These visual hallucinations can take many forms, like patterns, people, animals, birds, buildings comic book and fantasy characters and anything else imaginable. Charles Bonnet was a Swiss naturalist and philosopher who lived in the 1700s. And he was the first person to describe the syndrome after his father, who had cataracts, told his son about the visions that he was having. Now, Charles Bonnet syndrome can be very frightening or worrisome for someone with vision loss especially if he or she has not been informed about the possibility of experiencing visual hallucinations. Many patients tell me that they feel very relieved to learn about charles Bonnet syndrome because often they think they are losing their minds to Alzheimer's disease and are afraid to tell anyone about it. So the visual hallucinations in charles Bonnet syndrome have very specific characteristics. Usually the person becomes aware that the hallucinations are not real, even though they may be very vivid and clear. In fact, sometimes the hallucinations are sharper, more colorful, and clearer than the person's typical vision with low vision. Another distinguishing feature of Charles Bonnet syndrome is that the hallucinations are only visual and they do not interact with you, meaning that you don't hear them, you don't smell or feel things that aren't there. Uh, The hallucinations can appear at any time of day. Sometimes they fit with the background of what you are seeing, which gives them an understandable feeling of being real. And sometimes, They may interfere with what you are trying to see, and they can last for a short period of time, like a few minutes, or they may last longer. There is no medical cure for Charles Bonnet syndrome. Some people find a way of getting rid of the hallucinations by changing what they are doing. Some people find that if they move their eyes side to side, the hallucinations will dissipate some people find that brighter light lessens hallucinations there is no single technique or cure for getting rid of these hallucinations the good news is that they do tend they do tend to lessen over time and people do adjust to having them now, there are some great resources for learning more about Charles Bonnet syndrome and again i'm going to recommend some websites One is visionaware.org and lighthouse.org. Both have great web pages about Charles Bonnet syndrome. And then the British website, rnib.org, that's the Royal National Institute for the Blind in England, also has very good information about Charles Bonnet syndrome.
0: Well, thank you. So we don't have terribly much time, but I do want to uh, I do want to try to hit one more question. We had a question show up that was kind of interesting, um, and I, I've been trying to take a lot of questions and summarize them, but this one was a little bit unique. This was a man named Russ, I think, from Illinois, and he he asked if someone has only has poor vision, only one eye uh how can visual confusion be minimized and so how how do you keep the the good eye from and the bad eye from tricking each other is there is that something that a low vision specialist can help with
1: yeah um that's a very uh good question and that sometimes happens when people are used to sighting with one eye so there's something called um eye dominance just like we have a hand that we use to write with, which is our dominant hand. We also have an eye that we typically use to sight with. And when somebody loses vision out of that eye, that can make it um, difficult to adapt to that. Um, It's usually easier if the difference between the two eyes is very great. But if the difference is small, then it might be even more, you know, more so. Um, one thing that I would recommend, for example, if there's difficulty reading, I would take a piece of um, clear tape uh, and just put it over the lens uh, of the glasses of the side of the dominant eye, so the eye that's that's got poorer vision, uh, just as a temporary um just as a temporary uh, occlusion, something to obscure the vision out of that eye so that the person is only looking with the better-seeing eye for the task that they are trying to do, for example, reading. Um, That is usually a task that that, um, people have difficulty with. When it comes to using optical devices, again, it would be most beneficial if you see a therapist and learn to line the devices up with the better eye because sometimes people want to um, still use that the The dominant eye, even though it's the poor seeing eye, and they don't get good, reliable visual information through that eye, so again, working with a low vision therapist can really help to uh, minimize that visual confusion.
0: Well, thank you so much, and we're we're coming to the end of the period that we have set aside for for our call. I really want to take a moment to thank you so much and express appreciation for Dr. Weiser-Park for for taking the time to speak with us today, and certainly I thank everyone who joined the call and submitted their questions. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be posting a recording and a large font transcript of the call on our website. You can also get to that by just calling us at 1-800-437-2423. You can also listen to and download past chats on Apple's iTunes and SoundClouds. Best of all, this is all free of charge. But uh so you can get to those those prior uh prior calls. Give us a week or two and we'll get this one up there as well. Our next chat will be next month and it will be on detecting the early signs of macular degeneration. It will be Wednesday, June 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. We certainly encourage you to register and submit questions in advance and we'll be sending you a reminder email if you've already registered on this call. So, in fact, you can actually register for the June chat right now and you can also request free low vision materials like our safety brochure safety in the older driver the amsler grid that i mentioned earlier in the call and again that you can do that by calling 1-800-437-2423 or visiting our website at brightfocus.org again that's 1-800-437-2423 or brightfocus.org so we'd love to get your feedback on these chats and we'd like to do that by asking you one short question and you, the best part is you can use your keypad on your telephone to answer the question. So here's here's the question. Overall, how would you rate this telephone chat? So if you would take the time to press 1 for very helpful, 2 for somewhat helpful, or press 3 for, well, not helpful at all, then we'd find that really helpful to ourselves for actually bettering this program in the future. So again, that's one for very helpful, two for somewhat helpful, and three for you need to do a little bit more work. So while you're doing that, I'll remind you that the Bright Focus chats are held on a monthly basis. So to find out about upcoming chats, just give us a call or check our websites for updates. You can also find out about us by liking us on Facebook if that's something you use. We're also out there on Twitter and Pinterest and all those other, other social media platforms. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback. And if you'd like to leave us a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Thanks. And from all of us at the Bright Focus Foundation, have a great day.